Welcome to our podcast. Here at Spear Consulting, our services include business strategy and human resources consulting. In HR, we offer executive search, executive coaching, and work psychology consulting. Visit us at spiritmco.com, where we fulfill our clients' dreams virtuously. Enjoy your show. Welcome back to the Leading Virtuously podcast. Excited to be able to bring you an alumni of my career, Jamal Malone. So excited to be able to have you here today with us. Can you start by answering the first question, which is always, who are you? Well, Chris, first, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, for me, I like to describe myself with three words, family, fun, and fair. <laughs> and yes. at the end of the day, um, those three words really describe every aspect of my life. And whereas a lot of folks may be one way at work, one way at home, another way when they're out to play. Uh, for me, I have one calendar and everything gets jammed on that calendar. And if it's not on that calendar, it really doesn't exist. But all of those things, family, fun, fair, um, church, all of that stuff is really on my calendar. And being able to intertwine all aspects of my life, I guess, keeps me a little bit sane, uh, <laughs> leading an organization here in Chicago. So my current profession, I'm the CEO, Chief Executive Officer for Ada S. McKinley Community Services. Chris, as you know very well, because you helped to recruit me and uh, get me placed there. It's been about six years now, I believe. So six years at Ada. But for me, uh, I have a business background, but then I have a a heart for doing mission work and a passion for service. So my career, um, I'm an accountant by training and by trade, but realized very quickly that accounting was not a passion of mine. I just happened to be pretty good at it. And so ultimately, after some professional jobs working for Ernst & Young, doing consulting work, working for larger organizations like OfficeMax, CVS, Caremark, I migrated into the not-for-profit space. and ended up at National Children's Center in Washington, D.C., where you helped recruit me back to Chicago to A.S. McKinley. So. Awesome. Well, my second question is usually, you know, tell us a little bit about your leadership journey. I think you hammered that out. So I want to go back into the family, fun, and fair. Let's dive into family and fun. Can you talk a little bit about your role as a, as a husband and a father and then also how you have fun? So I'll start with uh, my boys. Uh, I think I was destined to have sons. Working with young men has been a personal passion of mine, especially young African-American men. Um, I've been a mentor, coach. Uh, I'm a father of three boys, 15, 12, and 10. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, we've helped out nephews and uh, just continue. We even added a male puppy to the family recently. So it's just <laughs> something about, about young men and boys that just um, – I'm passionate about really helping and uh, enjoy seeing them succeed in life. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to leading uh, virtuously, I do look at all aspects of my life through that same lens and try to live in accordance to um, really the, the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And through teaching my boys that, and teaching them to be young leaders and young men, uh, the, the most important thing is to really set that example. And so they get to come to work with me. If Sometimes I'm working on the weekend, pre-pandemic, of course, 
Uh, they would go to the office with me and hang out. They might be on their devices, but they would see me working. Now that I'm home, you know, they just kind of walk down the stairs and pop their head in. <laughs> Every day is bring your child to work day now, it seems, right during the pandemic. <laughs> but that's really, really me. And then uh, you said you wanted to get into fun a little bit. Yeah, sure. Let's go. Yeah, so fun. Uh, just trying to get anything. you loose, Jamal. I'm just giving you, I'm just yeah. throwing you up. Anything, anything to do with water. So love swimming, <laughs> love scuba diving, love fishing. I don't know, something about water that's peaceful and just being able to get out in, in the water. Uh, other than snow, snow is the one exception where, you know, I'll, I'll pass on the snow, but any other type of water, I love it. That's awesome. So have you gotten your, uh, have you shared that passion with your, your children as well? And what does that look like? Uh, when the kids were younger, um, I always had this vision of us all being able to swim together and go scuba diving. And my wife's not the most avid swimmer, but she's even gone scuba diving before. So I always had this, this dream of all of us in the water to, together scuba diving. So if anyone knows anything about scuba diving, there are hand signals that you give each other because you can't talk with the regulator in your mouth. So as little kids, we would hop under the, the covers in the bed and take a flashlight and pretend we were scuba diving and do like that. Are you okay? And then they'd give the okay sign back or, you know, out of air or, you know, we need to go to the top. So uh, just starting them off early. What's the hand signal for, oh, shoot, there's a shark. <laughs> you, you just swim back to the boat. <laughs> like, <laughs> believe it or not, um, my wife and I took a trip not too long ago, but it was uh, a couple of years ago just to celebrate, I think, one of our anniversaries and went back to the Virgin Islands where we got married. Uh, and we were really young when we got married, but got married. Uh, we've been married for 17 years now and dated for five years before that. So let's go. 17 years. I love that. College sweethearts. Right. Um, actually did come face to face with a, uh, a lemon shark, I think it was. And hmm. that was actually not the scariest thing that I saw that day. Wow. What was the barracudas are way <laughs> scarier than sharks. Because, you know, you see, you saw the shark and it was uh, not, not a small one, but it kind of just swam away and disappeared. You know, I got nervous because you couldn't see where it went and you didn't want it to come up behind you. But if you've ever seen a barracuda, it was just hovering there with this mouth open and you could see all of its teeth. And it just kind of like turned like this just to look and watch me. I'm scared of anything that's not scared of me in the water. So <laughs> that thing didn't look nervous at all. And just all those teeth. So. Well, a little bit later, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, vices and learning curves. For me, it's like if I lose control, that's when I'm just like, you know, thinking about being in the middle of a huge ocean and having all sorts of different things like barracudas and and sharks around that, that I can't do it. <laughs> I would way rather be, you know, I, I play hockey, so I'm I'm far more into winter sports and being outside into the winter than, than definitely into a large ocean where things are, can get out of control. So good for you. And thank you for sharing your passions as well. My pleasure. So in another interview, you had outlined how Ada S. McKinley has attacked the root of a societal issue instead of trying to fix the symptoms of that issue. Can you share some of these eye-opening incarceration statistics about people of color and how Ada's services are attacking the roots of these issues? Sure. So when you look at the demographics of people in prison, it's disproportionate. 
And what I mean by that is men of color, African-American and Hispanic men are over 50% of the prison population. When you look at the total U.S. population, uh, less than, let's call it 25% of the total population are men of color. And so just statistically right there, there's an uneven balance. And there are many reasons for that. But without going into the reasons, I want to talk about some of the issues that that creates. So when you look at the natural family environment, and when I, when I say natural, I'm really talking about um, traditional mother, father, children, married couple scenario. So many times uh, fathers have been imprisoned and pulled from the homes or throughout history, when you look at the civil rights movement prior to that, where government programs were designed that if there was a male in the home, the mother could not receive assistance uh, due to um, food assistance, other economic assistance. And so going back before that, when you look at Jim Crow all the way back to slavery, the system was designed and set up for disrupting the natural family in the African-American community. Even going back to slavery, when uh, males were separated from their wives and, and sold off in slavery. And so it takes generations for us to get to this point. But when you have generations of this um, just unconscious actions and activity, what we see that's manifested now through uh, uneven judicial sentencing and uh, arrests where we, we don't have to go into that because it's just it's so much evidence and research out there. What's happened is that we spend a lot of time as human service and social service agencies and government entities funding um, adults that have mental health issues or employment issues, um, food deserts in certain neighborhoods, a lack of the creation of wealth due to redlining for real estate and insurance companies in certain neighborhoods. And all of that wrapped in is where we're looking at what that pipeline is to try to disrupt it at different points. And if we think about a child, let's just take a young African-American child that's born. Uh, and if you trace through the different risks that statistically are imbalanced against uh, productivity and success, let's start with um, early learning. So due to economic and neighborhood and other issues where a child is born, if they're born in a neighborhood that has less resources, then they'll less likely be able to go to pre-K. Mm -hmm. They may end up being uh, cared for in a childcare environment, but may not have some of those educational opportunities that some of their peers might in a different neighborhood, different subdivision somewhere else. And so then when they get to school and in kindergarten, they're not in the same pace as it comes to learning about basic ABCs and beginning to read. And so then once you get to the third grade, uh, you hear the stories about how prisons designed and based their anticipated occupancy on third grade literacy rates wow. in certain communities. And so then if a child is not on target for reading and academic uh, targets in the third grade, then there's a higher increase that they're likely to be suspended to, from school or miss school once they get into middle school. And then once there is a suspension on record or significant absences in a school's 
elementary and then getting in the middle school career, then there's a higher likelihood that they will not graduate from high school. And then if they don't graduate from high school, so forth, so on, it increases the risk of them being incarcerated, not going to college, not having the ability to vote in certain states, the majority of states, so forth and so on. And so uh, I know that's a mouthful, but I wanted to walk through that, uh, that lineage because what we've done is we've structured our programs over time since 1919 when Ada Sophia McKinley founded our organization coincidentally in the middle of the Spanish flu, another pandemic that was going on, but targeting really disrupting each of those different points in the pipeline. Hmm. Whether it be our early learning programs through Head Start, our mentoring programs for young people in middle school, our college placement programs, and we run one of the world famous, um, one of the most famous programs in the country, uh, our pioneer Silas Purnell, and Revi Sori, former Chicago Bears player that blocked for Gail Sayers and Walter Payton. We, you look at um, the, the number of kids that we've helped place in college. We placed over 80,000 kids at over 400 different universities across the country. Mm. And so anytime you have statistics like that, let's just do the math. So uh, the U.S. government uh, estimates that the difference between a high school diploma and a college degree is about $1.2 million increased lifetime earnings. Hmm. That's the difference between someone going from high school and just getting a high school diploma to getting a college degree at a four-year institution. And so when you look at that, we've generated billions of dollars, and many of whom were for first-time, uh, first-generation college students African-American, city of Chicago students, that then they were able to then have a roadmap for their family. And then once one sibling goes to college, it increases the likelihood that their siblings now may follow on that same path. And so through breaking these generational uh, issues and, and curses, if you will, we've been able to, just through those programs, disrupt that system. And when you look at our other programs, we also provide uh, mobile crisis response through our mental health program. And what that does is it's similar to the 911 for mental health. Mm. We deal with a lot of young people and a lot of adults where we'll get a call on our emergency hotline and we'll dispatch anywhere in our geography within the Chicagoland area. And we will divert and try to keep that person from going to jail for a mental health issue. Or if they're at the hospital about to be admitted, we get them into an outpatient clinic or try to defuse them and uh, divert that situation so that they're not admitted to the emergency room, which then taxpayers have to pick up the, the cost because usually there's no funding from that individual to pay for that huge emergency room bill. And we can get them the better service that they need in an outpatient way through our therapy programs. And so, and so forth and so on. We also work with people with disabilities um, and employment programs as well employing people that may have had less um, than the average opportunity to gain viable employment. And so through all of these different avenues, we're focusing on disrupting that system that's in place. Wow. <clears throat> no, needed, uh, no need to go deeper into virtuous leadership, Jamal. Absolutely crushing it. Thank you for the work that you do. I'm curious, Jamal, why do you care personally? 
Like, why did you take this job and why is this something that's near and dear to your heart? Yeah. So for me, um, and, and you know this from knowing my background, I've always had an affinity to help young people. And so me growing up um, in Detroit, I saw a lot of folks look to the left, look to the right that didn't make it. And I always said, if I ever had the opportunity, I would give back. And it started with me doing work through the church. And even when I was young at Ernst and Young, uh, and shortly thereafter, I would create these different programs for young men, young men's mentoring programs, or do conferences, men's conferences. And at a certain point, I would uh, lead uh, men's Bible studies. But I've always had uh, an appreciation for people that have helped me because I didn't get here on my own. And I don't believe in pulling, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Um, and when you hear folks that say um, that, oh, well, you know, government support is bad or people that need government help is bad. Well, I'm gonna ask them, well, did you take the uh, earned interest credit on your taxes? Or did you take the, uh, what is it? The, um, help me out here, because what is it? The home tax credit? Or did you get to deduct your mortgage interest on your taxes? Because all of that, is government help when you think of it that way. And think about when we check those boxes on our tax returns, we're all receiving those government benefits, no different because it all comes from the, from the same treasury, right? That funds a lot of different programs that are helped, uh, designed to help society. And so a lot of people don't realize that they're getting government benefits, but then wanna look down on people that do. So for me personally, I wanted to just give my time, talents, and treasure back in the area that I'm passionate about. <clears throat> well, thank you for the work that you do, Jamal. And it's absolutely critical for the city of Chicago and our <clears throat> surrounding states as well. So thank you for that. Um, you know, this was the first CEO position that you had taken on. And it's not, you know, you've got a big reach, right? It's over a $40 million budget, over 500 employees. <clears throat> So can you share a little bit about your learning curve um, to inspire and educate other aspiring CEOs as you kind of walked into this role? You know, when I started my career, I didn't necessarily have a goal of becoming a CEO. If anything, I took the opposite approach. When I was at Ernst & Young, I looked around and when I heard the statistic that 95% of public accounting partners get divorced, Oh, wow. And usually it's in the pursuit of career. And you hear that with many um, professions like that, whether it be attorneys, doctors, uh, other careers. I said, you know, I don't think I want to be on the partner track. And so I really started exploring what I wanted to do. And as it relates to my path, you know, I said I wanted to be successful but I wanted to be successful in life, not just in career. I want to be able to have a family. I want to be able to have a wife with a sustained marriage where I actually get to see them. And when I was a consultant at Ernst & Young, I would fly out every week. And so at one point I was 100% travel to the point where I would wake up and you know, all the Marriott's kind of look the same. You don't even know what city you're in. You know, for one point for almost a year, I flew to DC every Monday morning and flew back Thursdays and fr Fridays and just didn't even really see home. Only saw my apartment at home in Detroit probably six to eight times a month. And so thinking through what that looked like, I just said I wanted to be able to contribute to an organization 
and be more of actually a entrepreneur, if you will, because I had started my own business doing uh, consulting on my own, uh, co-sourcing with other projects, doing audit work. Uh, and then when I had an opportunity to work for a company, I really liked being independent and I liked having that autonomy. But, you know, once you start to develop a family and, and get married, you know, benefits kicks in really fast when you start talking about delivering babies and other stuff. So I decided to, to take a position at, uh, at Caremark up in Northbrook. And I always had the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So I said, I'm going to treat Caremark like it's my one and only client. And every day I go to work, I'm not going to work. I wouldn't even call it work. And my family would tease me and say, oh, you're going to work today? I'd say, I'm going to Caremark. <laughs> and I did that for several years. And then when I took another position in Office Max, I said, I'm going to Office Max. So in my mind, I was always that contract employee, even though I got a W-2. And I think what it did is it made me think of things not as just someone getting up, going to punch a clock and say, how could I add value in this role, whatever my role is at this company? And then what that led to was me leading ADAS McKinley and just going through that leadership path. But you asked about the learning curve. And the reason I brought up those other positions, ADAS McKinley is so complex. If you remember General Electric back in the day with Jack Welch, we have programs in so many different industries, whether it be education, mental health, healthcare, uh, employment, child welfare, uh, we're in facilities management. We have military contracts across three different states doing facilities management. And so I took all of that business experience and really applied it. Uh, but the, the thing that no one ever teaches you or trains you, there's no manual for being a CEO. So for me, I've had wonderful mentors, at, uh, one in particular that we've gone on this CEO journey together and we talk on a weekly basis. We share ideas with one another. But the learning curve was there's no title above mine. Mm. Think about this. When you have any other position at a company, there's always another title or a promotion. Once you become a chief executive officer, there's nowhere left for you to be promoted to. So you have to run that organization as if it's your baby, as if it's your living, breathing thing that you're responsible for, knowing that there's no other higher title that you can get. And so it puts you in a different mindset where you're fully responsible for something, just as if you were for a family member or a, a wife or a child. And so Ada Sophia McKinley, Ada S. McKinley Community Services, that's become an extension of, remember I mentioned family fun fair. So it's an extension of my family. I'm just thinking about... So, Chris, let me ask you a question here. I see your wheels Please. turning. Let's go, yeah. You've placed a lot of leaders in different roles. And so um, I'm sure you've seen some leaders, without giving any names, that are more successful than others. And you may have this sixth sense about when someone might be a good fit. What's, what's part of that secret sauce, right? If, if you want to be a CEO, what's like the one or two thing... What are two things that you may have seen in candidates where you say, yep, and after years later, I, I knew they would stick. What are those characteristics in your mind? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And 
It's interesting. You're the first person that's actually thrown a question at me in the middle of their interview. So I, I appreciate it. You know, usually I'm the one sitting there smiling, asking the question. So uh, yeah, thank you. for. We're, we're going to put you to work a little bit today. <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, yeah, just thinking that, you know, I just kind of had a similar conversation with one of our larger clients for a, uh, a health or an academic medical center down in the Southeast. And we were talking about the fact that like, you know, when doing business development, some of the ways that I find to be the best ways to, you know, reestablish relationships, and I'm sure you're probably, this may ring a bell back to your consulting days, is like, look at some of the candidates that we've helped along the journey and be able to reconnect with them and reestablish those relationships. I think the thing that's really can be incredibly frustrating <laughs> is that, you know, we can really only probably help even under 1% of the total number of candidates that we we source and, and present to our clients, et cetera. And then looking back at those, it's like, there's been so many times that, that in essence, like you don't even anticipate just ridiculous amounts of growth in people's careers that you may not have been foreseen uh, to be able to uh, like, just in essence. So if you're ranking candidates on like a one, two, three, you know, this is the third best candidate for this position. In, in just kind of doing this audit and looking back over past candidates, just seeing sometimes it's those third candidates that have like exploded within their career development. So I think, you know, as you talked about church and, and those biblical terms, I think sometimes like it's hard to place based off of like where people are designed to be and what they're designed to do in life, et cetera. So, so that's interesting. So that's the first thing, that's my disclaimer on, on, on kind of like the hiring process, because, you know, it, it's not the easiest thing in, in the world. You know, in essence, what we usually are doing is let's look at past history. Let's look at, let's run assessments to see like, how is this person being wired to leverage the strengths that they have internally? And then lastly, why, why is this something that interests them for the long haul, you know? Because at the end of the day, if, you, if you're not actually, if you don't have fire in your belly to go off and do the work that you're going to do, when adversity comes and we know that adversity is coming for all of us, are you going to be able to have that perseverance to basically get up and, and do that job? So I, I think those are usually the things that I'm, I'm looking at to, uh, as, as I'm looking at leaders. And as you kind of mentioned and communicated, you know, this isn't, this wasn't like when we were talking about the services that Ada was providing, it wasn't like this is like Jamal's like completely out of left field. Even the work that you were doing in Washington, D.C. was a precursor of the work that you were going to be doing for Ada, plus your ties to in the Midwest. So just, you know, because that's the other thing. It's like if we don't, if oftentimes if you have people having to relocate across the country and then they don't have those bonds, et cetera, as you're also talking about having those people that are pouring into the lives and supporting them that becomes also a, a, a way extra thing. And as you mentioned, it's all about, it's a community that stands behind people's greatness. So if, if this person's completely left on an island by themselves, the chances of them being able to continue to, to uh, succeed is, is, you know, that much harder. So that's usually kind of the way that we, we look at uh, looking at placements and kind of like where I'm, when I'm thinking about candidate slates as to how I'm feeling, uh, if it's going to work out and, and, and how, how we come through on, on the ranking, et cetera. 
So Chris, that's an interesting statistic. You mentioned less than 1% or 1% get placed in those types of roles. And I, I read a lot of books um, in particular, uh, you know, T.D. Jakes or Miles Morales around purpose, but it, it, it triggered a thought about Zig Ziglar. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book. Uh, let me see. I think I had it over here on my shelf. I think it's, uh, yeah, Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale. Ooh, I, and don't, I don't think I've read that one. It, it's a great book. And what I learned, one of the things that I learned from that book was that it doesn't matter what your personality type is or what your strengths are. But if you play to your strengths and utilize those and maximize your individual strengths and then surround yourself with other people that can close the gaps where you're not as strong, then that's one of the signs of success. And so whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you're analytical or charismatic or some combination there, therein, being able to surround yourself with people that can shore up your opportunities for improvement or, or your weaknesses, if you will, with that interview question, right? Uh, tell me something where you have a weakness. Now we say opportunity for growth or something like that, right? But being able to surround yourself, but knowing that you can have success with whatever characteristics you bring to the table um, and banging those out and maximizing what you're good at. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you kind of mentioned, you know, looking at your own career, this was going from, you know, being in that leadership position to now being in the number one seat. And then in essence, having the entire leadership team being able to report up to you. And so being able to be mindful about those that are, that we're bringing around us as leaders. And, and I think that's the other thing that you're just kind of calling to trade is like, um, self-knowledge, self-mastery, knowing, knowing, knowing ourselves. You know, I think it brings to mind Abraham Lincoln's quote where they were, his, his leadership team was trying to bring in a person to have him uh, hire this individual. And his response was like, no, I'm not going to hire that person. I didn't like his face. And they're like, what? You didn't like his face? What does that mean? And he's like, well, this guy's like in his forties, and he, he didn't know how to basically uh, manage his own facial expressions in the interview process. So showing that like this person doesn't really have that emotional intelligence, knowing about who he is as a person. And so if you, if you can't start there, then your ability to be able to start looking across you know, your leadership team and, and recognizing the different strengths and opportunities for each of the people under us, then how are you going to be able to uh, just lead people in that way. And so, so yeah, uh, I think that's, that's critically important when looking at leadership. So, and it's a great segment to my next point, which is, you know, now as a CEO, can you talk a little bit about the virtues that you've mastered that you feel really strongly about, you know, having learned over these last six years and are there any virtues that you're presently working on uh, now, Jamal? Well, the world around us constantly changes, so we can never really sit on our laurels. And I was actually thinking about your last question as it relates to this one. One thing that is different, and I'd like to add, in past positions, past jobs, even when I was a CFO and Chief Operating Officer for National Children's Center out of D.C., thank you for mentioning that as well, part of that stair-step approach to becoming a CEO. 
the amount of what I'll call significant or important decisions that you make are really limited. And so if I had to make one or two really crucial or critical decisions a week or, you know, whatever that time period is exponential, the number of significant decisions that have to be made in the CEO position. And so uh, just kind of the running saying that I have is, well, you know, that's like, that's another Tuesday when something drastic happens or there's some crisis or something. And to be able to have the thick skin to balance, deal with, and not basically just die emotionally when you get home, uh, to be able to absorb, being able to make so many different decisions and then not doing it yourself by yourself, but empowering your team to contribute and having us make collective decisions because I have a family approach and team approach to leadership and decision-making as well when appropriate. But that was something that was a, a surprise to me. And what I might've thought would be a small interaction. When people interact with the chief executive officer, there's so much tied to that. Whether you're walking past someone and saying hi, or even if people here, you might be in the building. Like I've had someone come back and give me feedback before and say, hey, you know, this group heard you were in the building and you didn't say hi and they felt offended. And you know, I might've just been running between meetings, it, it, nothing was malicious or intentional. But optics are so much more important at the CEO level. And so when you want to talk about to your, your next question about those virtuous characteristics or how do you bring that into it, uh, it really does get back to the golden rule. Sometimes it's just a matter of how do people feel when they interact with you and being able to be in the moment because we may have a million things that we're thinking about, but that one person's interaction with you is not just you as Chris or me as Jamal. It's, they're interacting with the CEO. And there's something with that title where we don't get too many second chances to make that first impression or that second impression or that third impression. And when someone is turned off, it's very difficult to fix that perception, not just of, of me or you, but our whole organization is tied to that. Mm. And so there's such a weight connected to that, that really making sure that you have the energy to be in the moment is one of the most important things. Yeah, you, I think a simple way to validate that is go on any social media and, and look at people's comments. You know, how many times if you just go on social media, just literally go open up any news source whatsoever, look at the top 10 articles, go on social media, look at the top 10 posts, and you'll notice, look at like the negative comments versus the positive comments. And, and you're so right that in essence, like when we have good experiences, it's like, okay, great. We don't usually go and be like, oh, this was such a great experience, blah, 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 give testimonials, et cetera. But if we have a bad experience, that's like, you know, everyone just wants to put you on blast. So yeah, it, you know, being mindful about that and recognizing the fact that literally you are Ada's brand. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of weight that carries that not only for external constituents, but also your internal employees as well. So uh, that's beautiful wisdom and advice. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Some other funny advice I got was never let a good bathroom go to waste. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Another 
CEO. Uh, he gave me that advice, and, and I thought it was weird when he said it. Yeah. But what, yeah. what I learned was that you know, even when you're talking with someone, you know how when you have back-to-back meetings, you need to like, I just got to go to the bathroom, step away. It takes away from being in the moment, and so I know it's kind of a silly comment, but the, the reality is. As a CEO, even if you have to go to the restroom, that doesn't preempt and outweigh the interaction that you're in at the moment, representing your entire organization, your family, yourself, your brand, your organization's brand. And so he always would say, never let a a good bathroom go to waste. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm like, I'm 50, 50 on that one. Joel. I don't know if I could buy into that because if you're sitting there and all, all you're like, you're like, I'm right about to poop my pants. Then that, how, how can I be? I'll elaborate. Right. So if, if you're talking with the CEO of, you know, let's use Chicago Motorola or, or Boeing or, or wherever. Right. And they're abrupt with you and you don't know why. And you walk away feeling like, man, they were just really, really short with me. It just leaves a bad taste in someone's mouth. And you don't know why. Um, and I've just seen that scenario where on the other side, you know, you think it doesn't really make sense. But I'm telling you, if, if you're doing a podcast, for, for, for example, with, you know, Chris Gomez and it's like, you know, hey, Chris, I got to cut you short. Got to go you don't really have that excuse. And so we have to be in a moment wherever we are. Hmm. And it never, ever turns off. The title, the job, the work, thinking about it, it never turns off. And I wish I could put myself in the mind of a mother because I suspect, and I'm gonna say I suspect for any of the ladies that are watching, any women, I don't wanna say that I know what it's like to be a mom. So let me put that out there. (laughs) Clearly articulate that. So, you know, your comments aren't filled with negative stuff. But I wish I could be inside the mind of a mother for a moment because I suspect it's similar to being a CEO where when you have a child, being a mother never turns off. So I think, I think it's similar. Well, if you talk to Cookie Gomez, she'll tell you about how amazing her her uh, fifth child is and that he's never done anything wrong. <laughs> and, and yeah, so I, I, I understand where you're going at uh, right now. Uh, just better understanding about just continually always being on and thinking about the business and, and each interaction having the weight that you're kind of discussing. And uh, yeah, so I was, I was just kind of thinking about, you know, as you're talking about bathrooms specifically, I just come to a place of humility where I realize like everyone's got to, <laughs> everyone's got to go. And so if, if that, if I run into those situations and meetings, I'm just very frank about that. So people aren't, you know, I'm not catching them off guard, but now as you communicated that further, I think, yeah, it's, it's very crystal clear. So, so thank you, Jamal. Uh, hey Chris, so- I got to go to the bathroom. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, that's enough for that talk. But um, yeah. So you also asked about, other aspects of uh, virtuous leadership. I do believe in bringing the whole person to work. So I found that in trying to separate family and work and marriage and work, it just creates a divide, trying to compartmentalize things. And sometimes you have to, but as best I can, I try to have my family be inclusive and included in the 
passion that I have for the work that I do. And so this also gives them a little bit of appreciation for when daddy was not there. Now, obviously COVID, I'm physically here, but mentally not present mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm working, but uh, especially when you, know, you have all the events and the activities and the meetings and going out and doing things. And pre-COVID, we may have been in a studio somewhere. Or I may have been physically sitting across the table from you doing this, which means that a lot of times they're going to bed and you know, just dad's at work. And so what I started doing was I started uh, including my kids and in coming to volunteer events or bringing them for different activities or fundraisers just to let them experience what, what it's like and to be able to have other people see that side of me, that the human side of, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a CEO, but I'm also a father, right? Uh, I'm also a husband. And so I want to give credit to Liz Thompson who is uh, the wife of Don Thompson. Um, They're at uh, Cleveland right now, Um, but he's a former CEO for McDonald's Corporation. Liz gave us an example of how we can be more impactful as leaders when we have the support of our spouse engaged throughout that process. And so without going into particulars, that, that opened a new thought process for me because there were a lot of times where I did keep stuff separate just to try to have a compartmentalized approach. But I said, wait a minute, that's not the best way to do this. Hmm. And I'll give a really live example. So the most recent thing that we've done is my wife and I now have um, uh, our own uh, podcast and radio show. And we started with WVON where we do family talks with Jamal and Letitia Malone. And we're interacting with other married couple leaders. And um, it's just been such a a privilege and blessing to sit next to her and let people see all the great stuff that she does. Because she's the one that really holds so much down and she's got her own unique stuff going on that sometimes can be overshadowed when the other person might be a little bit more of a public figure or executive. So Hannah and I work together and she has done the advertisement for this podcast. So, so yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more that it's so mission critical to involve our families. And, and, you know, as we talked about before, I think I heard this from one of the guests actually on your podcast, which is I stand on the shoulders of giants in that, we have to, you know, basically it's community that it allows people to be able to be successful. And so the more that we are able to involve our families into the work that we're doing, um, I think that that's beautiful to, uh, you know, also kind of broaden that horizon of the people that you're interacting with too, to be able to see you in different lights beyond just Jamal Malone, the, the CEO. So, so thank you for, for sharing that. And, uh, uh, Jamal, how can people support you for the just absolutely critical work that you're doing at Ada McKinley? So the best way is to learn about what we're doing at adasmckinley.org. And I encourage and challenge everybody to go to that website and let us know what you think about our services, our programs, our impact. And if you're moved even the slightest, we ask that you contribute to our programs uh, contribute to our endowment so that we can continue the 100-year-plus legacy from when Ada Sophia McKinley started our organization. 
And even if it's a small contribution of $10, $100, $1,000, or $100,000, we just ask that if you're touched at all, just to make a contribution so that we can continue the work that we do. And you also um, had added the fact that you had another, I don't know if the, the I believe the campaign's still going on with uh, I am Ada, correct? And how has that uh, campaign been going? Because I just think about how many lives your organization has touched. You're right that if you, the more of those people that come forward and share those stories, I think it's just such a powerful movement. So we touch over 7,000 lives a year on average, and we've been doing it you know, over 100 years. We've just continued to grow and grow, and uh, the needs of community has not ended, so our services continue. But when you think about what we've done, it's just nothing short of uh, miraculous through COVID, still being able to provide these types of services, in some cases, new and creative ways, but specifically the I Am campaign. We have so many people that have come through our programs that want to uh, either give back or share their story with how we've touched their life. So it's been been amazing just to hear from people and, and the recipients of their support. So we're very appreciative. And, and if you haven't seen the Chicago Tribune or the Sun-Times articles, those are on our website. Over the last several weeks, we've been recognized and honored and mentioned in so many different news stories, whether it be the 33% increase in our foster care referrals throughout the pandemic, um, us doing contact tracing, hiring Head Start parents, that may not be able to be employed because they have to be at home with their children right now, or the fact that we have facilities management programs at military bases and federal buildings where we're giving people with special abilities an opportunity to be employed in facilities management and uh, janitorial and custodial type work. Um, and they're on the front line fighting COVID still, on, you know, whether it be at the Dirksen Federal Building or Great Lakes Naval Base or Ludeman. And so I Am Ada is just such an amazing campaign because we do so much and it's good to see people that have benefited and moved on and have had success when we're part of their foundation. Well, your success is my success. So <laughs> keep on, keep on rocking, uh, Jamal. I love it. I love hearing just all the amazing things that you're accomplishing and the lives that you're transforming and impacting. Um, so We'll definitely include the, the way to connect with you um, in the show notes. And thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today and look forward to continuing the dialogue with you, my friend. Thank you, Chris. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> Just joking. The Leading Virtuously podcast. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day.